All right, John. Well, thanks for uh, sitting down and, and uh, agreeing to talk. It's it's great to meet you and uh, and welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. For sure. Um, I think for a lot of people, myself included, the first thing I am curious to get your thoughts on is just what is ketamine and how did you personally get interested in what it is and how it might be able to help other people? So, um, ketamine actually, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time. Um, in the, you know, sixties, they, they approved it and started, um, utilizing it for, you know, anesthesia. And then it moved into kind of, you know, veterinary, uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the main reason why, uh, it, was used uh, uh, significantly in the, the veterinary world is because the uh, the safety panel with weight based dosing mm-hmm. um, that was the the really big thing. It was just really easy to draw up a dose based on you know the weight of the animal and you know still be able to administer it safely without having to worry about respiratory depression and other things like that. Um, and you know it was. Probably in 2006, uh, they, the National Institute of Health uh, actually did a study um, using ketamine and uh, looking at it for the efficacy on uh, treatment-resistant depression. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that study was extremely successful. And uh, the, the, the protocol they used during that study was a weight-based protocol that was actually a half a milligram per kilogram, mm-hmm. and it was delivered uh, intravenously over a 40-minute period. Mm-hmm. So that was the protocol they used, and that was kind of the original protocol that um, most uh, uh, ketamine providers uh, loosely based their um, uh, delivery off of. And, uh, with the, uh, all the combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the, the military operations were starting to utilize ketamine, uh, more frequently in the battlefield because of that same, same safety profile. You know, it doesn't cause respiratory depression, you know, as opposed to, you know, if you hit somebody with morphine or fentanyl, um, you know, very easy, you could stop them from breathing and then you've got to manage uh their breathing while you're trying to manage everything else and uh you know ketamine was much easier to use and you know having a just a intramuscular injection of it um also allowed uh the the soldiers to be dissociated from what was going on because you know let's say for instance you you get blown up from an IED and, you know, literally your legs are blown off. Um, it, nobody really wants to be around for that reality and live through it. So if there's something that can take care of the pain and also, you know, get you to check out, um, then, uh, there's less, uh, trauma, um, from the, the mental health aspect. Mm. Um, so they, they started to see a reduction of, um, you know, PTSD symptoms later on. Um, there's still some controversy on, you know, utilizing ketamine on a 
like a prophylactic basis before the trauma happens mm -hmm. um, that that really hasn't been tested and shown to be as effective, but they started to see, you know, the, the soldiers that, you know, got ketamine out in the field and when they went through their recovery, um, they showed less clinical signs of, mm. you know, PTSD. And um, that was, you know, kind of the catalyst for ketamine to start coming back into the industry on mm. being more of a, a mainstream medication and more familiar um, with just healthcare providers mm. in general. Is it fair to say that that is what started, as you as you said, uh, sort of its resurgence back into, you know, the interest in the mainstream of medical science was was really first in wartime usage, and then after seeing the efficacy and the the way in which ketamine might be beneficial, you know, the, seeing the potential for potentially using that in uh, non military environments. Yeah, I mean, so it the. The interesting part is um, most of our medicine and our medical breakthroughs come out of wartime. Um, you know, uh, with my background being a paramedic and EMS, you know, Vietnam was huge for the development of pre-hospital medicine. Um, you know, just um, kind of like helicopters and, you know, medevacs, that, that's kind of where that started to catch on. So, you know... We're starting to experience the same thing, but this one is unique because it's for mental health. And that's an area that, uh, as a nation, we have uh, kind of dropped the ball on, on being able to manage effectively and, you know, get a, a good grasp on, uh, you know, the, the, the real heart of the issue because... Um, it's just been within the past, I would say, 10, maybe 15 years, more more like 10 years, mm. um, that we've started to actually um, try to break the stigma around mental health uh, and, you know, actually needing um, some assistance. Yeah. Um, so it, wartime has been extremely beneficial for, you know, the the evolution of medicine, but it's also brought up a lot of um, weak points that uh, need to be addressed with the, the mental health aspect, you know, and, you know, vets are kind of, um, you know, they're, they're focused uh, target group that are easy to study and analyze and to, to, you know, see if things actually um, are effective in treatment like that. So yeah. that's the reason why a lot of the the medical breakthroughs, um, you know, are are used out of wartime because yeah. that's when you have the the liberty to uh, forego the the intricacies of informed consent. Yeah, yeah, a sad reality, but a, a potential silver lining in that. Yeah, uh, that history. In terms of ketamine as a drug itself, and I feel like in at least in American culture, it's there's a lot of buzz around psilocybin use these days and MDMA therapy trials, and, and ketamine is not quite, in my experience at least, as ad well advertised these days as some of those other substances are. As a drug, is it something that is a naturally occurring substance in the natural world like magic mushrooms? Is it something that 
a scientist accidentally invented at one point in the past? What, what's the genesis story of how it was extracted and uh, you know, isolated as a, as a substance? So it's, it's completely synthetic. Mm. Um, and, uh, the, when, uh, ketamine was actually developed, it was developed because PCP had too many side effects. Really? Yeah. So, uh, it actually, um, uh, targets a, a PCP receptor site in the brain. Mm. So that, that's, that was kind of the, uh, the motivation for the, uh, synthesis of ketamine was to, um, you know, find a, a, a dissociative medication that would, you know, uh, have the, the safety profile and not affect the, you know, your, your, uh, the cardiac and respiratory, uh, systems as significantly as some of the other medications and still allow a person to dissociate away from the, the current situation and what's going on. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, I, I think we, we saw it in the eighties with PCP, uh, whenever PCP was used recreationally, um, you know, the, the, the side effects and, um, you know, just the, the, the degree of psychosis, um, from PCP, uh, made it, um, ineffective as an actual, uh, a legit, uh, medication that could be used in a controlled environment. Um, so once they were able to synthesize ketamine, um, they found that it had, you know, very minimal, uh, side effects of, um, a lot of times it's referred to as like excited, um, um, delirium, uh, is what, uh, a lot of pre-hospital providers, uh, know it as. And it's just pretty much where, you know, the, the person, you know, is completely checked out mentally. They're not there and, yeah. you know, there's no speaking with them and they're acting completely irrational mm. and, violent and and typically you know injuring themselves yeah so uh when ketamine came around it made it very easy to use uh for pediatrics and uh you know using it during anesthesia in extremely controlled environments with other uh medications hmm. uh made it a, a very uh, easy drug to work with hmm. that you didn't have to uh, worry about really prolonged recovery times or, um, a high incident of adverse side effects. Hmm. I think if people hear, I didn't know that, that there were, it was a, I don't know if cousin is the right word, but it was an offshoot or a reaction to the negative side effects of PCP. Are they, are the two drugs at all related and are there any, um, similar effects in an individual? You know, I, the the image I'm getting in my head of PCP is exactly as you just described, someone who is psychotic and self-harming and is just, for lack of a better word, acting crazy. Right. Um, is Are any of those symptoms generally found in uh, in ketamine? Are there, you know, any parallels that you think you notice between usage of the two drugs or are they totally different in, in how they affect a human being? So, um, it well... The ketamine, if you look at the structure the, the, um, of the molecule, it's very similar to PCP. Hmm. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it's very similar to DMT. And like with most psychedelics, whenever you start to dig into the, you know, their organic structure, um, you'll start to understand a little bit more on why uh, a lot of them have some of the same, um, you know, responses. And, you know, uh, we're starting to see that they're effective for treating some of the same uh, mood disorders yep. and conditions. And um, with ketamine, the the irony is it's actually contraindicated for somebody who's in a manic episode or a psychotic state or something like that. What, what does that mean exactly? Um, so if you're if someone who has bipolar, um, typically they have depression and then they have moments of you know manic. Uh, mania and it doesn't have to be you know um, completely manic it can be hypomanic there's different you know degrees of it but you know it's a wax and wane you know you go from highs to lows and since ketamine is a dissociative and it's confusing it's weird it's abstract it's hard to describe and um you know it the a person's experience on ketamine has a whole lot to do with the external variables and a ton to do with their mindset when they come in. So if you're already in even a, you know, on the verge of being in a a manic, just, you know, having flights of thought and just completely irrational, um, then ketamine kind of just will help be a catalyst to kick that in and, you know, uh, you can run into those issues with mm-hmm. the treatment. Mm-hmm. You mean it could exacerbate the problem? Yes, it could, absolutely. It could amplify it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that, that's the, the big one. Um, when, you know, we're, uh, doing patient selection yeah. and intake and, you know, uh, everything with that is just to try to look for all of those, uh, potential areas that could be, uh, troublesome, so we can avoid those um, because it's not contraindicated for bipolar patients. It's actually pretty effective. Um, you just have to ensure that they're not on that, you know, that manic or, you know, hypomanic side of, you know, their uh, illness at the time of treatment. I see. Okay. So, um, so but, provided that day they are yeah. in a more stable state, it would be reasonable to think that they could have a, a pleasant experience on that. Absolutely. On, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And you know, even if you're not, you know, diagnosed with bipolar or you truly don't have, you know, something that would be clinical mania. If, uh, let's, let's say you were scheduled for treatment and, um, you know, you got a telephone call that, you know, your, your mom died at 10 o'clock that morning. I would probably recommend that you reschedule your kidney <laughs> yeah. treatment because yeah. coming into any psychedelic experience, um, with, you know, that, that negative mental state, uh, that psychedelic experience is just going to exacerbate what's, what's going on mentally, um, at the time, unless you're able to, you know, uh, meditate or, you know, get yourself out of that state prior to your, uh, journey. Um, otherwise it's going to be, a um, very, uh, turbulent, uh, white knuckle experience. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, you know, ketamine, you know, similar to other psychedelics, it, it 
can kind of exacerbate or emphasize whatever mindset you're in whenever you come into the experience. Okay. Um, and in terms of the, the time frame of the creation of ketamine, I, was it an intentionally synthesized as a way to get some of the benefits of PCP without the negative side effects or was it uh, discovered completely separately from PCP? And, and when is this the eighties we're talking about when it was initially synthesized and created or what's the time frame there? Uh, nineteen six. In the 60s, I don't okay. know exactly which yeah. year, but um, no, it was it was intentionally um, synthesized uh, to try to uh, diminish the side effects um, that were uh, associated with PCP. And just just to dig in on that a little bit, was PCP at the time being used in a medical context, or were people just addicted to it and they wanted to? synthesize a drug that didn't have the adverse side effects of PCP in recreational use? Well, I, with PCP, it actually didn't start being recreationally used until much later. Okay. So it was just the, in, in the medical industry when they were doing, you know, a lot of drug discovery Yeah. back during the time. I mean, this is, you know, the time in which we had a significant amount of drug discoveries. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they started to um, toy with it. And uh, I'll just say that the United States government has been working on a lot of different things over the years um, that would be advantageous for a nation and national security and stuff like that um, whenever it comes to uh, certain operations. Mm. And that was... You know, some of the motivation was, uh, you know, some national security and, and military development and intelligence. And, you know, because, um, you know, under the influence of a psychedelic, uh, you can elicit a fair amount of information from someone. Right. Um, once you, you know, it, it, this is extremely true with ketamine. It knocks down your, your emotional defense mechanisms, your natural barriers that, you know, your your mind and um, you know, your brain puts up, uh, to resist certain things. And so you're, you're, you're much more open and much more at liberty, um, talking about different things. So it does kind of, you know, loosen up the lips a little bit and make someone a little bit more pliable. And that, that was a lot of motivation with it. Okay. And at, at the time, uh, in the sixties when, when PCP was, uh, it sounds like not yet a recreational drug, but was being used in a, a medical context. Is that, was it, was it, was PCP primarily being used as uh, a, a disassociative or, um, being used in a field of battle? What, what was PCP's use in, in a medical context prior to ketamine being synthesized? It was, it, so it really didn't have, um, a specific use that they were uh, shooting for. Yeah, it was just uh, you know the they started to uh, develop it, and once they started testing it, it would um, you know affect the the patient or whomever it was administered to in um, different ways and. You know, specifically whenever it comes to national intelligence, uh, if if you can administer a, a medication and uh, to help out with questioning, um, it really helps uh, develop the use 
of that. And I think when, um, you know, a lot of the investigation was being done, you know, once again, you go back to military, it's a, a very focused population that you've got a lot of liberties with. Mm. Um, and, you know, even look at some of the other, you know, college uh, trials that they did back in the days, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the Stanford uh, project and stuff like that. It was, um, there was a lot of investigation about mind control and just looking into, you know, how certain chemicals affected people's ability um, to have that control over another individual. I mean, it was, it was really a, a odd time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was a lot of motivation. I mean, we were in the red scare and there was a lot of things that were going on and uh, you know, the concern was if we don't find out what it does and how it works and how it affects us, um, then we, we could fall prey sure. to somebody else using yeah. it. Um, and then, you know, once we investigated the, you know, kind of the, the intelligence and the, the clandestine uh, uh, methods of, of use, um, I think the spillover to, you know, legitimate actual you know patient care um uh, utilization started to become more common practice because you started to see you know when you gave it to somebody this was you know the the effect and you know physicians and other uh providers that were administering it started to see oh it, it causes this so it may be beneficial for this and one of the really interesting things that it's used for today, you know, even, uh, you know, in uh, emergency rooms and stuff is called conscious sedation. So let's say you've got a dislocated shoulder, um, you know, they can give you uh, a little bit of ketamine and they'll, they'll probably give you, you know, some type of IV benzodiazepine, you know, Versed or something like that. And, you know, they'll, they'll relocate your shoulder and you know, it works pretty well because it doesn't knock you out. You get your shoulder relocated and you're able to recover and be discharged from that, you know, ER within Hmm. a couple hours, Hmm. although you'll need a ride home, but (laughs) you'll still be able to be discharged and go. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, in the time frame, so it sounds like in the sixties it was, it was discovered and synthesized for the you know following many decades up until the relative present um what what was going on with ketamine at that time was it being used in in clinical uh scenarios for, during that time was it completely did it completely go underground what's kind of the story from its creation some of the testing that began to happen re- related to ketamine and what its potential benefits could be up to now was it always available did it become incredibly incredibly difficult to access what well a a lot of it so when when it first uh you know became synthesized and they started to see some of the actual legit uh properties that could be useful for in a clinical environment it did get fda approval Hmm. um as a you know anesthetic um utilized you know during anesthesia purposes and um with the safety profile it really didn't have uh, too many disqualifiers, Hmm. uh, for patients. So, um, 
you know, as long as, um, you know, it was administered in that type of environment, um, then uh, that's how it was being utilized at the time. Um, and then it started to be used more uh, in vet medicine as time progressed. Um, and then probably, you know, in the 80s, early 80s is whenever, um, you know, there was... Uh, and a lot of recreational um, use that developed in the 80s was uh, from kind of an uncontrolled uh, vet market mm. uh, that made, you know, ketamine a little bit more available to the black market. Yeah. Um, it was easier to get your hands on something that's being given in the vet world than in the human world. <laughs> um, so uh, that kind of, you know, helped encourage the, the recreational use of it. And, you know, uh, although it was the recreational use of ketamine is typically cut with something else. It's typically not just pure ketamine. Um, and because a, a lot of patients after they go through a, a treatment, you know, in a clinical setting, they're like, I could never imagine using this in a club or something like that, being yeah. around a whole bunch of people in an uncontrolled environment. And I agree, it'd <laughs> probably be a little stressful, yeah. but, um, you know, that was yeah, the time in which MDMA started to, uh, also come around and, you know, it's kind of been a human instinct for us to seek out, uh, certain chemicals that are going to, you know, distract us from a uh, normal reality of mm -hmm. every day. Uh, you know, uh, especially now in the times that we're living, uh, you know, everyday life isn't as dreamy, um, yeah. as it, as it used to be. So seeking those opportunities to, um, you know, have a, uh, an experience that's beyond, uh, what your physical senses, um, can see, touch and feel, uh, started to catch on to a lot of people because uh, although it wasn't an intentional thing, um, uh, most patients that started to use psychedelics in a recreational environment um, and those that had positive experiences typically had, you know, a perspective shift in their life mm -hmm. and, you know, that they experienced some sort of, uh, you know, uh, transcendental, uh, moments or shift in their personal reality. Yeah. And, you know, it's contagious. I mean, when you see people smiling, it, I, you want to smile too. <laughs> so, you know, it, when, uh, something starts to work, it, it does catch on like wildfire because yeah. it's, it's like, holy cow, th this does have the potential to be really useful. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, the the biggest disadvantage we had as a nation was Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean yeah. that was that was a huge reason why we're having this conversation in 2020 and not you know 1980. Yeah, yeah, and it, so it sounds like it was permitted as an anesthetic for a period of time, and then it was also allowed as. Uh, an option for, for vets, veter yeah. for veterinary medicine during that 
you know, from the sixties until recently, was it ever used in the U S for therapy purposes specifically, or was, was that component of, of use of ketamine not allowed? So the, what a lot of people have to understand is ketamine is utilized. So racemic ketamine hydrochloride is utilized to treat mood disorders and other, uh, you know, like central pain disorders as an off-label treatment. It's not directly FDA approved, meaning that the FDA has not measured the uh, effectiveness on how well it works in treating those things. But when you use something off-label, there's been evidence to show clinical effectiveness to treat certain, you know, um, uh, disorders or illnesses, whatever you're um, prescribing to be utilized off-label. Yeah. We use a lot of medications for off-label purposes. Um, a, a really common one that I, I like to remind people of is, you know, something that's used for anxiety, and it's actually... Um, you know, it's a beta blocker that controls your heart rate. It just slows your heart rate down. Mm. It has nothing to do with, you know, any neurotransmitter or your GABA or true anxiety relief. But if you can slow somebody's heart rate down, then you're going to decrease everything. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it works indirectly and is very effective. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's, kind of a uh, a really common one that's used frequently hmm. and since it's a, a, a beta blocker for your heart that you know the risk for abuse isn't there yeah um, and that's the risk for abuse with the treatment modalities is what scares us away from utilizing them on a regular basis for you know clinical indications if they're off label because not having that endorsement by the FDA allows people the opportunity to put, you know, the question in there, mm. you know, is this, is this really, you know, beneficial for that? Or is this, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, lucrative scheme to, you know, make me spend more money because it's not mm. FDA approved. Therefore it's not covered by insurance. So just to, just to clarify on that, if I'm understanding this correctly, so, in in the case of ketamine and with uh, beta blocker medicines that you were just mentioning, uh, it isn't necessarily that they have been with the beta blocker example, which would be applicable to ketamine as well, that they've been thoroughly tested and approved for anxiety reduction. They have been investigated and approved for uh, improvement of one's heart, but you can t it is possible to take it because it's legal for heart treatment and also receive the anxiety reduction, which is sort of an after effect of its, its medically authorized, uh, purpose. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. It, it's, okay. it's kind of just a, a blanket exception, um, mm -hmm. to use in you know, other, uh, you know, uh, courses of, of treatment I modalities yep. that aren't necessarily approved by the FDA. Right. Um, but because they're not approved by the FDA, like you mentioned, if I heard you correctly, they're not 
they don't fall within the purview of, of what is typically covered by insurance. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So it all, it all have to be, it, it, you can access it, but you'd have to pay for it out of pocket. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. The, yeah. Welcome to the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, this is the, uh, the conundrum that we live in. Um, mm. because, uh, you know, uh, there's the, the most recent, uh, thing that the, uh, we've experienced with uh the uh ketamine industry is uh the recent approval of uh s-ketamine or spravato um and the easiest way for me to explain the difference between regular racemic ketamine and s-ketamine mm -hmm. is to compare it to um cannabis so you've got you know, if you look at marijuana, it's got CBD and THC. THC is your psychotropic component. Um, and CBD is more of your anxiety lytic, uh, anti-inflammatory, so on and so forth. Mm. So with ketamine, you've got S-ketamine and R-ketamine. They're called enantiomers. 50% of the molecule is the S form and 50% yeah. is the R. Yeah. So the S-ketamine is what Johnson & Johnson has gotten FDA approval for, mm. um, and that's what Spravato is. Uh, and the reason why it received um, a lot of praise was because the, uh, the, it didn't have the, the psychotropic uh, component. Although without that psychotropic component, you also get a huge reduction of its effectiveness. Mm. Um, and, uh, there's been limited studies for Spravato that have been endorsed by Johnson and Johnson and the pharmaceutical manufacturers of the medication. Um, and, uh, although it's FDA approved, it's still very expensive and it's, it's still, although, we typically say if it's FDA approved, then insurance companies are going to, you know, cover it. Well, yeah, insurance companies are going to cover it to a certain extent. They're only going to cover a certain amount over a certain time period. Yeah. And since it's so expensive, that does play a factor in how much they cover. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, it's been really interesting to see because in 2006 is when we started to realize that ketamine has the ability to be beneficial for mental health. Um, and it took probably, I mean, we're still kind of in that, the growth phase on for, uh, for ketamine to truly catch on for mainstream. It's still considered alternative. Mm. Um, and it, you know, there's a lot of ignorance out there because, uh, you know, it's, the conversations aren't being had. It doesn't have the, the same, um, um, you know, uh, the, kitchen table discussion that psilocybin and MDMA and mm. LSD and stuff have, uh, although it's increasing, um, you know, it's, it's been around and it's kind of been the, the, the sleeping giant in the back, uh, that we're starting to realize, Hey, we, we don't necessarily have to wait another two years for, you know, these psilocybin trials to wrap up or whatever. Yep. Um, we've got something we can use now, yep. although, you know, it is, the accessibility is limited due to the, the money yeah. and uh, stuff like that. It's still something we can use. Mm. Um, and 
to be honest with you, the patients that we've had that have tried Spravato have not um, had the the same results with it, and it still comes out to be fairly um, uh, expensive to get. Yeah, and in your judgment, what what would be the you know, primary differences between the two in terms of the effect on the on the patient? What if in your judgment there is any improvement that one could expect from getting is it s ketamine s s yeah yeah s ketamine uh what would that be compared to what might be generally expected in a full r ketamine i think you said yeah. um uh treatment so um i mean you're the the antidepressant properties and the reduction of suicidality is significant okay um and fda has approves bravado for both of those hmm. and just to piggyback on that i would argue that it would be hard to um say that racemic ketamine isn't effective at treating depression or suicidality because it's made of the same thing yeah so it's just one of those in which although it's not directly approved for it it's still clinically effective and the research is there and S-ketamine research even validates that even further. Hmm. Uh, R-ketamine, since it's got more psychotropic components, it's that experiential component that, um, you know, part of our clinic that we seek out as well in the, uh, the therapeutic uh, gains because ketamine is going to have its natural biological effect on, you know, the the your neuroplasticity and your ability to develop a, a new routine of thought mm -hmm. and develop alternative ways to, um, you know, uh, troubleshoot and problem solve and see your reality from, yeah. um, but the, that, that R ketamine is the, the one that kind of helps give you, uh, that dissociative and mystical and, you know, that psychedelic experience. Um, there, so there's a whole spectrum of patients that we see that, you know, if you are not comfortable with the dissociative experience and you don't like that psychedelic mystical experience, that's fine. We don't have to push the dose that high and yeah. for you to, you know, completely dissociate. Um, but we'll still get the benefits of, you know, the, the ketamine on the brain and the, you know, your whole, uh, you know, um, neuroplastic uh, modifications. And that's something that we see with Spravato as well. It's just the additional benefit of the experience isn't part of the equation. Hmm. Um, that you would get with racemic ketamine. Hmm. And that's the reason why, um, you know, when you're looking at getting treatment with racemic ketamine, no matter how it's introduced into your body, you know, um, taking into consideration the, the external variables of where you're getting your treatment um, is significant because those are going to play uh, a factor in your experience. Hmm. So, um you know, there's, it's a bell curve for the patients that really, uh, benefit from, you know, a, more of a higher dose, mm. um, mystical experience. Um, 
here recently, there's been some studies that have actually been able to correlate, um, you know, uh, the higher dose and the higher plasma levels um, with a, a more of a, a prolonged reduction of symptoms yeah. and a, a more significant reduction. Although, you know, those are, you know, haven't been peer reviewed and stuff like that. There's still some uh, question of, yeah, if, you know, although you'll get the, the normal, you know, neuroplastic changes, no matter what the dose is, it may have a therapeutic benefit if you can get a pleasant experience out of it. Hmm. So we're sitting in the, in your facility and you, you mentioned this a little bit uh, ago that, you know, there's, there are people who are interested in this. And then there's also, it sounds like a discrimination on your side in terms of uh, who you think is either suited or capable of kind of handling the experience or, uh, you know, the, 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 there, there's some sort of delineation or cutoff where, whereby if, if I'm understanding you correctly, that, uh, you would not necessarily feel comfortable providing, uh, these treatment sessions to specific individuals with specific conditions or symptoms. Um, I'd be interested in getting your judgment or thoughts on who those people are and, and, um, basically which type of people it would be, uh, it would behoove them or would, might be helpful for them to, you know, second guess their, uh, interest in, uh, in getting the treatment. Like who in your mind is, uh, maybe not best suited for going through, uh, sessions like you offer here at the, at the clinic? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, so I actually think that, uh, generally speaking, most everybody could benefit from ketamine. Yeah. Um, I, regardless of your, your prior experience with psychedelics, um, you just have to have a knowledgeable provider that, you know, um, is aware of that and understands that component, not, not just from a professional, um, perspective, but also it does help to have that direct experience, uh, from a provider's aspect because, um, it would be very hard to explain to you what the experience is going to be like and to prepare you adequately to have that experience without truly understanding what that experience consists of, mm -hmm. because it's such an abstract experience. There's hardly very many words in the Webster's dictionary that can describe it fully mm -hmm. for someone to understand that. Um, so, you know, we, we ask a lot of questions and, uh, you know, we go off a person's medical history, their past uh, social history. You know, if they've tried psychedelics in the past or even marijuana in the past, what type of reaction did you have? Well, what what type of env environment were you in? You know, were, were you, you know, 18 years old at a party when, you know, you smoked marijuana and got paranoid and had a bad experience? Or was it, you know, one of those in which, you know, you, you tried it out and it was, you know, for... For all, you know, intents and purposes, you tried your best to make the set in the setting the best possible and you still had an adverse experience. Yeah. Um, so just kind of knowing the full story behind one's experiences in the past will give you a very good idea on how they're going to respond 
um, to a ketamine infusion yeah. or ketamine therapy just in general. Um, but you know, the, the big disqualifiers are, are typically, uh, medical reasons. You know, if someone's got extensive cardiac history or if, you know, they've got some sort of kidney impairment or liver impairment that's going to, you know, affect the metabolism of the medication hmm. or something of that nature. Hmm. Um, those are the big things. Uh, you know, the most common side effects that we see with ketamine uh, uh, therapy is increase of heart rate and blood pressure. So if you've got uncontrolled uh, hypertension, uh, you, you've got to get that under control before you're considered, you know, a viable candidate for the treatment. But when it comes to one, uh, an individual's past experiences with, you know, psychedelics in general, even if someone, you know, uh, relays to me that they've had, you know, negative experiences in the past. Um, if we just approach their treatment a little more conservatively um, at a lower dose and really emphasize the, the preparation and, you know, getting them into the, the right mindset before their treatment, um, we really don't have that many um, I would say, you know, uh, negative experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, I like to use our, um, the frequency that we utilize a, uh, a Versed or benzodiazepine to calm someone down, uh, during treatment. Um, and we, we don't utilize it very often. And part of the reason for not using it is because it will impact the experience. It does have certain properties on your memory that cause, you know, some amnesia. So you're, hmm. you know, it, ketamine experience is very, it's kind of like a lucid dream. And um, once you get done with that experience, um, the, the memories are, are like a dream. Uh, they, they do, you know, kind of uh, have difficulty being recalled the longer uh, out from, you know, the, the experience. And, uh, if you're able to sit there and, you know, provide a pleasant experience for somebody who might be scared or extremely, you know, anxious about what the treatment involves, mm -hmm. um, man, that, that can kind of, you know, just smooth out the road for, yeah for that person that's going to change the rest of their life. So if let's say, uh, you know, somebody walks in here and they want to, they're interested in this and they're for lack of a better phrase, a normal person, they have mm -hmm. periodic, uh, you know, days or moments of anxiety, depression, but nothing clinical that it's, it's so extreme or debilitating that they're not a functional member of society. Would you welcome them to, if they were inclined and interested in, in having this experience to, to do so, or is it, are, are you really more inclined to, uh, welcome in people who are, are dealing with serious trauma, serious mental illness? What, what's kind of your, your take or judgment on that? So, it, it's it's a slippery slope, um, and since the the field of ketamine is um, highly unregulated right now, 
Um, it's best practice since it's being used off-label to ensure that you've got the, the qualifiers there for uh, indications for treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it is starting to be used more uh, earlier uh, with uh, depression. Um, um, some, uh, you know, psychiatrists uh, are comfortable, um, you know, recommending patients do ketamine therapy, you know, after one failed medication as opposed to waiting until the patient fails two medications, because that's the the definition of being treatment resistant is that you've had to have failed, you know, two trials of medications before. um, And if, you know, the course of two other antidepressants didn't work, then you've got treatment resistant depression. Yeah. Um, You know, to be honest, whenever it comes to, you know, a clinical diagnosis for, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, um, it's a very broad category. Um, and uh, right now, especially like in the pandemic, even if you don't think that you've got generalized anxiety disorder, most of us are experiencing a generalized anxiety disorder right now. So although it's not clinically something that you've went to a psychiatrist for, um, I'm not going to sit there and say that a ketamine infusion is not going to be therapeutic for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the you know, we do have to have that clinical indication in order to administer treatment, um, you know, to check all the boxes for, you know, the, the medical board and regulatory uh, indications. But, you know, it's also one of those that if you think that you may have depression or anxiety or PTSD, that's not necessarily, you know, uh, has been diagnosed or, you know, it, it's not significantly impairing um your you know daily living um that that shouldn't be the the indicator on on whether the the treatment would be beneficial for you or not yeah um so you know if someone comes and presents and they they do have those that may not have been diagnosed then we will ask for them to get you know a diagnosis from you know their uh, psychiatrist or whomever mm. But since it's utilized in a, an off-label purpose that's not covered by insurance, um, direct referrals from one's provider are not typically necessary mm. in order to receive ketamine therapy. Okay. So it might, in, in, in principle, it could be possible for people who do describe themselves as, as you just articulated to be able to come in provided they can afford it and have treatment here without the bureaucracy of uh, a formal instruction from a a doctor or a psychiatrist. Is that, is that fair? So one of the things that we, um, have the, the convenience of is the doctor that we have on our team is a psychiatrist. Okay. (laughs) So it, it does provide us a little bit, uh, more freedom, um, to deal with, with patients, um, that do not have that formal diagnosis. But, you know, the other two common uh, physicians that are involved with ketamine clinics are emergency room doctors and anesthesiologists. And, um, you know, it's really up to the the medical doctor involved with that practice on what they're comfortable with and what they require 
from their patients in order to qualify to receive treatment. Okay. So if there's a patient that, you know, there's, there's question of about whether there's a formal diagnosis, at least for us, um, it's, um, very easy for us to get, um, our, uh, supervising physician involved to, in order to get that, you know, medical yeah. clearance and that, that check. Okay. Um, just, uh, you know, if for nothing else, um, it, it's just uh, best practice. Okay. Okay. So uh, by the letter of the law, it sounds like that may not be necessary, but in your clinic specifically, and I would imagine in, in most clinics for best practices, as you just articulated, uh, that is sort of a, a step along the way prior to, to treatment. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's the, the big part is, um, you know, it, ketamine, it, don't want to be naive about it. Uh, if you, if it is available to be abused, people will abuse it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we want to encourage the utilization of psychedelics for this purpose in a, a very, you know, legitimate, um, you know, uh, reasonable fashion. And, um, you know, we, we don't want, whether it's our clinic or other clinics, we, we want to try to refrain from, you know, kind of watering down the market and um, getting a, a bad rap before mm -hmm. we even make it back into mainstream sure. acceptance. Yeah. Um, because, you know, most people, um, you know, the first thing when they hear the word ketamine is special care, recreation. And so when you've got that stigma that's associated with it, um, for the industry and, you know, for society in general, it's best to fall on those best practices because, um, uh, all the naysayers and, and the, the people that don't necessarily endorse, um, psychedelics for, uh, the treatment of mental health. Mm. Um, you know, you, you take that, uh, component out of, yeah. you know, the mix and it, it makes it a lot more legitimate and, Regulations are going to come. It's a matter of time. And if we can figure out how to regulate ourselves, it's going to make things a whole lot easier for us in the future. For sure. In your experience, it sounds like you have been involved in this line of work for quite some time now. And you mentioned that there are periodically people, you know, their heart rate goes up. They do have, you know, troubling or difficult experiences while on ketamine. I'd be interested to have you speak to that, that what you know, when I think one of the fears in society is, uh, taking, uh, psychedelics and, and truly like permanently breaking from reality, uh, becoming permanently psychotic and, uh, not being able to reenter normal reality again, essentially losing your mind. Right. Uh, I, in your years of work in ketamine specific therapy, have you ever seen that? And, and, uh, generally what I would love to hear you just speak to the, those fears and what you think are, is a legitimate concern from society at large and what you think some of the misconceptions are of, uh, what can happen to people when they go through these experiences. Yeah. So, you know, psychedelics in, in general, um, you know, it's, if it's given in a controlled setting that you're able to, you know, regulate all of the variables, um, then, uh, 
to my knowledge, there hasn't really been, you know, a, a clinical case of someone not being able to come back to reality. Um, since that experience is so subjective, um, you know, it, it really comes down to the interview and what was, you know, their functioning and baseline prior to the experience. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, one of the, the big ones that I like to remind people of is, you know, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Um, it's still a, an approved treatment for, you know, extremely refractory depression. Um, but that legitimately has cognitive impairment because you are pretty much electrocuting your brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, legitimately that that's what it is. And there is plenty of clinical studies that show significant cognitive impairment after treatment. So um, whenever it comes to utilizing things like uh, TMS, it's uh, transmagnetic stimulation and different type of, um, you know, theta burst therapy and psychedelics, including ketamine, um, the, the, the risk for cognitive impairment and prolonged, um, you know, uh, kind of not coming back to reality um, isn't a concern. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, we uh, have been practicing ketamine therapy for almost, uh, you know, uh, two and a half years now, and we're getting up to around 2,500 you know, infusions that we've administered and out of 2,500 infusions, I've never had somebody who's had, you know, uh, any type of cognitive impairment or adverse, uh, impact neurologically. Yeah. Um, most of the time, if you're able to get the person to hear the words that you're able to speak to them during the experience when they're having those moments of anxiety and, you know, kind of, uh, I like to use the phrase, you get a little far away from your tether to reality and it becomes a little uncomfortable. Um, just having somebody, you know, put their hand on your arm and be like, you're doing fine. Everything's okay you're completely safe that provides that reassurance that that strange confusing weird experience that you're in it's okay yeah um and if you know it's only for a specific time period that also helps provide you the reassurance on having a comfortable journey as well yeah and that's the nice thing about doing ketamine therapy with an iv all right it, I can set a timer, and most patients, generally speaking, will recover at least 90% of their mental faculties within 10 to 15 minutes after the end of an infusion. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, half-life of ketamine is extremely nice. Typically, within 45 minutes after the end of treatment, you've got 
you know, I'd say anywhere 95 to 98 percent of your faculties back. And depending on your metabolism, two and a half to four hours is how long, you know, the half-life is. So um, it's it's much, that's the nicer thing about it um, as opposed to psilocybin or LSD right now is that, you know, we know what types of effects we're going to elicit at certain dose ranges. So... We start everybody off at a weight-based dose so we can get a good, accurate measure of their baseline and what they're comfortable with and how they're going to respond. And since it is a series of six over a two- to three-week period for the initial mental health induction, Mm -hmm. um, that gives us the opportunity to graduate their dosing throughout that course of treatment and what we're shooting for is to get you know a a a slight improvement from each treatment and be able to stack those and compound those benefits and that's what helps the sustainability for the prolonged results that we're we're seeking Mm -hmm. because you know we don't sell lemonade it's expensive yeah so we, we want to try to elicit the, the longest duration of benefit as well as, you know, the, the most significant we can achieve. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that there, there just aren't words in the, in the dictionary to describe what these kind of mystical experiences can be like. Granting that, I would love to get your take on maybe some, yeah, you're welcome to speak as specifically as you would like, but, uh, general themes of what you notice people tend to, uh, visualize, contemplate changes that you've noticed in, uh, people who have gone through these experiences, just any, any sense you can try as best you can to, uh, illuminate what it's like, uh, to go through an experience uh, like this, especially for somebody who has never, you know, had a psychedelic experience in, in their life. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, what it's kind of funny because when, um, you're speaking to somebody that's, um, typically a little older, you know, uh, they, they, they don't have as much familiarity with psychedelics as someone who's younger, you know, it's just generational. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you do have to um, be cognizant of that and be able to try to be creative with your descriptions. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I was talking about earlier, that direct experience is what, you know, uh, gives us the, the benefit on being able to convey that to patients. Um, you know, we, we try, um, each member of our team has an experiential um, infusion mm-hmm. so they they know what it's like mm-hmm. um, because when you have a, a provider doing this type of therapy who truly cannot relate to it 100 percent it it just provides a, a little bit of disconnect and um, you know there's always that gap of communication um, people who have experienced similar things, even if they can't convey it in words, they can still have that uh, related shared experience and be able to communicate that 
even in a nonverbal context. So, and, and that's extremely important. Um, but, you know, typically when a person comes in for their first treatment, um, you know, we, we go through a, a process of trying to ensure that everything, uh, as far as the, the Q and a, um, and the preparation has adequately been done. And, um, that way when we're in the room, we're not having to, you know, go over a review of actually what you're going to experience. Mm -hmm. But I will remind patients, you know, once we start the pump, um, you know, it takes about, you know, seven to 10 minutes and you're going to, you're, you get that warm blanket effect. It, it's kind of, uh, you know, an intoxication from having a couple drinks, mm -hmm. alcohol drinks, yeah. you know, it, it's, you, you do have that degree of the intoxication. Um, sometimes patients may feel like uh, a rolling sensation underneath their back or butt while they're laying in the chair. And although the chairs are massagers, we, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, we don't use it during an infusion. It could be a little over the top, but it, it does, you know, it does give you that physical sensation, the ketamine, you know, like, like you're getting, you know, a, a roller underneath your back. And, you know, as the, the infusion goes on, part of ketamine being that, you know, anesthetic, it does cause, you know, a little bit of uh, numbness and tingling to smaller blood vessels. So your, your hands and, and your feet and around your lips, you know, they get a little numb, kind of like you've had Novocaine or yeah. something like yeah. that. And, you know, you'll get a little bit of cotton mouth and it's just, uh, you know, you feel like your limbs uh, are gone. They disappear. But, you know, I promise they're still attached. <laughs> uh, once the ketamine starts to wear off, you'll start to feel them again. But that's part of the the, the level of dissociation. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it's one of those that you can, you know, dissociation is, uh, it's a very broad term. Uh, just because I say, did you dissociate? Uh, I mean, you know, even at the smallest dose, if you have some sort of disconnect between your hand and brain, that's dissociating. Mm -hmm. uh, but what typically uh, people are, are asking you is if you completely checked out of reality and had, you know, an experience outside of the room mm -hmm. um, that you uh, lost the ability for uh, to have that recognition that you were present in the room and, you know, it it typically is you know precipitated by that the loss of your peripheral vision and you kind of get tunnel vision on on whatever you're you're focusing mm -hmm. at um one of the observational clues that you can use is looking at someone's eyes because psychedelics actually cause um vertical nystagmus of your eyes and that's one of the big reasons that you get distortion to your visual field is because it causes um the nystagmus hmm. um but psychedelics are are uh very distinct in that uh form as opposed to other um you know like alcohol will cause horizontal nystagmus hmm. um so when you know if you're watching somebody else who's you know having a psychedelic experience when you start to see, you know, their, their eyes kind of 
do jumping jacks. You can, you know, uh, correlate that to a fairly, you know, uh, dissociative experience. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have any uh, measure of the the pleasantry, but you can, uh, you know, have an idea of where the patient is uh, mentally by, you know, just kind of looking at their eyes. And you'll also see, you know, the, the more somebody dissociates, uh, you know, you'll see a little bit more elevation in their heart rate and blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to uh, refer to it as a mental marathon. Although you're sitting in a chair the entire hour and not moving, um, the ketamine is, you know, causing your, your mind to do a mental marathon. Mm-hmm. And the, the big part of why ketamine really helps uh, with mood disorders in general is because it, it shuts down that default mode network and allows the message between your amygdala and frontal lobe to communicate more effectively on what you truly need to communicate back and forth. We're excellent at having, you know, that excessive negative chatter in the the back of our, our brains, minds when we're thinking. And, and that has a a lot of uh, impact on our ability to break out of, uh, you know, a rumination or that loop. Hmm. Um, It's interrupting that loop is where the the perspective shift and that you know the the therapeutic gains are made because when you're stuck in that routine of thought and that you know that that constant self negative chatter um honestly i i've never experienced any other medicine or seen any other medicine as effective as ketamine hmm. at interrupting that loop. Hmm. And, you know, to, to put it in like one, two, and three on the mood disorders that um, I think that, uh, you know, it, its effectiveness is, uh, I would say, suicidality, acute suicidality, um, is it's extremely effective for hmm. As a matter of fact, the Department of Defense and the VA has actually endorsed uh, ketamine infusion therapy as a first-line treatment for veterans actively uh, or experiencing active suicidal ideations. Although that was released in, you know, just a uh, an opinion uh, statement, and it's not truly being put to practice. Um, you know, it's pretty significant whenever you have, you know, the VA say, hey, although it's not, quote, FDA approved, um, we've seen the benefit work really well for, for suicidality, and we recommend it being used mm-hmm. as, you know, one of the first-line treatment modalities. Um, and we see it even in non-vets. Uh, uh, part of our goal here is to make, you know, ketamine therapy more accessible and we do um, try uh, our best to do as much outreach as we can by offering certain, you know, um, um, discounts for vets, first responders, and being in Austin, you know, local artists and musicians. Right? That's a huge uh, population that yep. we have here in Austin. And uh, like Ham is a, a fantastic, um, you know, personification of you know austin and its music and mental health is you know it 
It doesn't pick and choose uh, who it impacts. And, uh, you know, a lot of artists and musicians typically have higher incidence yeah. of mental health illness, as well as first responders and vets with PTSD and stuff. Yeah. So that's been really nice. So if I heard you correctly, it's essentially it's shutting down the default mode network of the brain to allow the frontal lobe and the amygdala to have better communication yeah. with, with each other. Subjectively, for individuals that are in the middle of having that effect on their brain through the ketamine infusion, as a subjective experience, is that immediately noticeable? And, and regardless, are people, is it, you know, visions of their past that people tend to see and be able to work through more effectively? Is it just insights on problems in their lives that they ordinarily were unable to sort of reason through or think through what, what is that uh, improved communication between the frontal lobe and the amygdala actually feel like for the people, if it can be put into words at all for patients that are in the middle of that experience? Typically. So I, I recommend that you don't go into any psychedelic experience with a specific intention Gotcha. on trying to work through sure. one thing. Yeah. Um, uh, ketamine, like most other psychedelics, your mind is going to go wherever your mind is going to go. Um, and you know, that, um, just going into it with a positive mind frame, um, is the kind of the, the most important, um, uh, concept of going into, uh, a ketamine infusion with, um, I, I use the phrase, you know, if, if you're, about to go play a football game or a baseball game and you're not giving yourself the opportunity to win that game before you even hit the field. I'm going to say the probability of you winning that game is extremely slim to none. Yeah. So just having the openness and, you know, the will and the want and maintaining some degree of, of hope that this is going to work. I'm going to benefit from this. And just putting those positive intentions in place before yeah. the experience and trying to be open as much as possible to the experience is going to make that experience much more pleasant. Mm. And, you know, uh, typically uh, the, the most frequent response I get from first time patients who, whether they've had experience with psychedelics in the past or not, um, is my God, that, that was so nice. Everybody should do this <laughs> because it just, it, we all have a backpack of bullshit, pardon my French, but you know, we do. And it's unique to each one of us, our experiences, our traumas, our depressions, our anxieties. I mean, it all weighs differently. It smells differently, you know, it carries differently and, you know, it interferes with our lives to different degrees. Mm -hmm. Um, but we all have one. And if you can take that backpack of BS off before you go into that experience and just be open to welcoming the experience and leaning into it and just being like, okay, I know this is, it's, you know, going to be weird and confusing just for a short period of time, but I'm going to be fine afterwards. I'm being taken care of. Somebody's watching over me. I don't have to worry about, you know, my medical safety and well-being. 
um, the more you're able to let go and just be in the moment and to roll with it, um, the more pleasant that experience is going to be. Part of, you know, having a ketamine guide in the room with you, all of our ketamine guides sit in the room with you are at least paramedics. Hmm. So you're, you're, you're never going to have a lower degree of medical care than uh, a paramedic uh, at our clinic. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the same at every clinic. Um, not everybody provides a guide with you. Not everybody, um, you know, does the, the same, uh, protocol over 60 minutes like we do. Um, there's a a lot of different strategies on dosing and length of time and delivery routes, but no matter where or how you get your ketamine, it still is a psychedelic and it's going to elicit some of the same types of experiential components. Yeah. So, um, you know, as a blanket statement across the board with ketamine therapy, you know, the, the more you're able to just let go and be in the moment, the more pleasant that experience is going to be. And having somebody in the room that can provide you with a little bit of grounding from moment to moment can, you know, truly make or break that experience, whether, um, you know, you get stuck in, in a, a negative moment or feel trapped or have, uh, you know, that a really high anxiety develop, um, you know, project Zendo with maps, uh, describes, uh, harm reduction. And if, you know, you can kind of, uh, use the, the same philosophy that they use for, you know, uh, facilitating, you know, psychedelic experiences in, in a recreational um, setting for a clinical setting. And it, you know, harm reduction and trying to help facilitate a good experience, mm. but not control it. Yeah, you, you don't want to try to direct someone's thoughts or try to, you know, get them through it. Uh, even with moments of, you know, we'll have a patient look at us with, you know, the, the deer in the headlights look that's just like, oh, my God, this is just outrageous. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of get that unsettled feeling that, you know, maybe they're not having a good experience. And then, you know, you've got a little bit of reservation after it's all over, um, you know, when you ask them. So how was that? You know, and, you know, generally speaking, a lot of the time patient reports, man, that was excellent. You know, they they don't necessarily remember that really anxiety provoking moment if they were able to lean into it and just kind of roll with it because it's going to pass. It'll pass shortly. Um, You're not going to be on one thought for very long when it comes to ketamine. Mm. And typically as the dose escalates, the, the speed at which you move through your thoughts is reduced. Hmm. So the higher the dose, the faster you flip through that book. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's what can cause the uh, a person to have a, a too intense experience yeah. is that it just gets a little too chaotic yeah. and a little too confusing for their comfort level. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why it's very individualized. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it, it's like fishing. You know, you, you cast your, your rod out there and, you know, you can undershoot and you can overshoot 
but we're always aiming for that sweet spot where we're really able to identify a pleasant experience, but also escalate the dose as much as possible where it's, it's safe in order to get the highest therapeutic gain. Yeah. And, and in the middle of the, in the middle of that experience, you, you, you just mentioned the, uh, someone saying like, wow, that was, that was ridiculous for somebody who's in the middle of a, a ketamine, uh, trip or therapy session, uh, experientially as that individual, like subjectively are, will they still know that you're in the room and that there is someone to talk to if they do experience some anxiety? Is, is there still a connection between for lack of a better phrase, the world you and I are inhabiting right now and the world that someone who's going through that kind of a psychedelic experience is, is experiencing, or is that basically cut off? Well, you know, it, it depends on how dissociated okay. uh, they are. Yeah. And, and the goal with, with ketamine therapy is, you know, to re, uh, to do sub, uh, anesthetic level, um, dosing for ketamine. I see. Um, and that really, that, that's kind of the, um, uh, that black and white line yeah. when you're, you're starting to look at dosing because, you know, at, at least the way Texas has it set up, um, you know, you, you can't give a, a bolus of ketamine in a, an outpatient setting like we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bolus is just like a, a you know, let's say, um, I start an IV and I give you, you know, uh, a hundred milligrams of ketamine all at once. Yeah. Um, that's a bolus. Um, since we titrate it over an infusion over a specific period of time, that's the, the delineation between the two. Um, in Texas, if you get boluses of ketamine, you have to be an office-based anesthesia practice. You can't be an outpatient medical clinic. So okay. it's just that that degree of uh, the uh, regulatory um, uh, issues for uh, medical settings. Okay. But um, typically with um, the dose, if you're still on, you know, what's referred to as a low dose for, for outpatient ketamine treatment. Um, the person's not going to be completely dissociated. We are wanting to achieve a level of um, dissociation where you're still able to engage with me with verbal stimuli. Yeah. Um, if we get to the point that, I mean, although that engagement may be a thumbs up because you can't speak um, because your language processing center gets uh, impacted significantly by ketamine. Um, Still, I'm able to elicit some sort of response by, you know, engaging with you verbally. Mm -hmm. If I have to uh, arouse you by painful stimuli, then that's, that's where we, we need to start backing off on the dose because we're, we're getting too high. Um, that's starting to get, you know, out of the, the sub anesthetic level dosing. Um, but even with certain patients, um, you know, at, you know, sub anesthetic levels that are moderate or moderate to high, um, you know, they, they may require a little bit more, uh, verbal stimuli in order to engage them. Um, and you know, whether it's 
it's not something that you're cognitive cognitive about during the experience because you're not really going to remember it, uh, generally speaking, unless it was a, a really significant moment mm. that kind of shook you to your core. But, you know, if it's one of those in which, uh, let's say I see your heart rate go up and it, it starts to hang out at a, you know, a pretty significant level that would indicate that you're not having, you know, a very easygoing experience, yeah. just putting my, you know, hand on your shoulder and giving you that verbal reassurance can typically help, you know, kick you out of that space. Um, and it does cause a little bit of grounding, although you may not be um, completely aware of it at the moment. It does bring you out of that moment, uh, that experience, and kind of bring you back to reality just a little bit. Hmm. But it's completely subjective on you know, to what extent it, it does that for individuals. Yeah. Um, you know, part of, uh, the experience, uh, that patients need to understand is, you know, you don't have to keep your eyes open to watch the video. You don't have to listen to the music. Um, you don't have to, you know, uh, speak, you don't have to engage with the person. The, the idea is to do whatever you feel most comfortable yeah. with, because this is your experience. Yeah. Um, and we want to provide the support necessary for you to have the most positive and pleasant experience. And, um, you know, the patient's always captaining the ship. You're, we're not going to, you know, lock you into any treatment that, you know, you're uncomfortable with, because if you're not uncomfortable with it, you're not going to have a pleasant experience. Yeah. So, and, you know, once again, you fall back to the cost of something, you know, the more something costs, the, the higher that level of service is expected and, uh, you know, you want to be able to provide as much um, safety measures for one to be able to check out and have that mystical experience if yeah. so that that's what they choose and that's what they're desiring. Hmm. So if somebody comes in here and they have a wonderful experience and it sounds like the vast majority, if not basically everyone has said that after, after they have, have left. Um, and I think in general, am I right that the sessions are, it's generally six sessions over the course of a couple weeks or a few weeks. Is that typically the duration of, of the, uh, of, of how long the sessions take? Yeah. Uh, so the, and this goes back to the original NIH, um, you know, trial they did early on, uh, you know, that was something that they, they tried and showed that a serial, uh, set of treatments is, um, where they saw the clinical effectiveness. Hmm. Um, you know, I will say, cause one of the things that we, uh, are very cognizant of here is people's schedules. Uh, we have a very, you know, a, a unique schedule for a medical clinic. You know, we open at noon, we close at eight and we're open Monday through Saturday. Hmm. So, um, if you're working a nine to five job, you can still come in and get treatment and still continue your day job and not have to take off. And when you start having to, the more things you have to, uh, do to move your life around to get this treatment, um, the more hurdles that, um, and the more difficulty, 
uh, one has to uh, get the treatment. Mm. And that's what we're trying to do is, you know, take those hurdles and those blocks uh, for the access out of the equation. So um, one of the most important considerations when you're looking at, you know, how often should I have a ketamine treatment um, has a lot to do with, well, what did your last treatment consist of? What did you walk away from that treatment with? Um, you know, was it something that, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, really taxed you physically? Do you need more time to recover from the, the physical, quote, hangover? You know, sometimes you can you can get a headache from it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you, you may feel a little bit of uh, physical, um, you know, drain the next day. Uh, it's not very common, but sometimes that's a consideration with patients whenever, you know, they're, they're looking at scheduling it in a general aspect, you know, we do encourage it over a two to three week period because, um, as long as we don't get a backlog on processing, um, then typically the, the closer you can get those treatments that the more of a, you know, compound result you can end up with at the end. Um, one of the big things that's really evolved over the past couple of years is the necessary component of integration with psychotherapy. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a psychotherapist, but some sort of therapist, because when you come in and have those experiences, sometimes you don't really know how to navigate or process or, you know, deal with, the actual experience that you went through and you may need a little bit of professional guidance or navigation in order to process those experiences. So we want to ensure we're putting enough time between treatments to allow for enough mental recovery and physical recovery, but also try to get them in as, you know, close as, as possible. And typically we've found that two to three days between treatments is the, the most common um, and also a lot of uh, different clinics uh, have different theories on, you know, the ketamine assisted psychotherapy. And that's having a psychotherapist in the room with you while you're having the experience. Hmm. Um, that can be extremely beneficial for some patients. Um, we've also found that uh, we've gotten extremely beneficial results uh, with patients following up with their therapist um, within, you know, 24 to 48 hours after they receive treatment. Yeah. Obviously, the closer you can get that therapy to your um, treatment, the more malleable and the more open and neuroplastic your brain's going to be to process and, you know, have um, adequate um, uh, time in order to make all the changes necessary. Um, but it's, we don't necessarily see, um, a added benefit, especially when it comes financially, um, by having somebody, a psychotherapist in the room during the actual time of treatment, especially for patients that are, you know, in a, you know, a, a moderate to high, uh, dose where they're dissociated for, you know, most of the 60 minutes. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, you're pretty much paying that, that 
therapist to sit there for 45 minutes and stare at you. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's just one of those in which, you know, it really depends on whether, you know, how you're getting the ketamine, how much dissociation, what type of experience, you know, you're eliciting at the time on whether you should have the therapist in the room during the time of the therapy or whether it's still advantageous to follow up with them, whether it's in clinic or you're going somewhere else and, and seeing your therapist. Yeah. Uh, one of the main reasons why we picked the location that we're in is because this complex has uh, I anywhere from like 30 to 40 therapists and counselors mm. and social workers within the same area. So mm. there's a, a ton of different businesses around us. Um, and you know, if you don't have to drive to go see your therapist after your ketamine infusion, it makes it kind of convenient because sure. you can just walk literally right across the parking lot and go see your therapist and have your session 45 minutes after your treatment's over. Yeah. How about for people that, uh, have really enjoyed it or gotten a lot out of the experience? Do you ever see people coming back for, let's say they go through a two to three week session, six sessions in total, uh, you know, a time period after that, whether it's months or a year or so they're interested in doing it again. Is, is that something that, uh, your clinic is okay administering? And is that something that you, uh, you do see from patients? And, and if you do, what is the, uh, is there a recommended sort of a distance between that sixth, uh, that two to three weeks, six times session and the next one that you, uh, would, would, you know, think is a reasonable time has elapsed for the, for the next session to take place? Yeah. So it's absolutely part of it. it it's just a, a maintenance. Um, and it's, we, we commonly refer to it as a booster infusion, mm -hmm. although it, it's not necessarily a booster. It's a maintenance infusion um, to help with the symptom reduction over time. Um, and this is extremely important for patients that have a history of PTSD. Um, and I'm speaking directly from experience. Um, I've been, you know, doing ketamine therapy for the past couple of years. Uh, most paramedics that have been paramedics for 20 years, they've got PTSD. Um, and, you know, uh, you do need a, uh, a routine maintenance program. Um, the, the biggest, um, protocol that's commonly used by a lot of clinics is on a, a four to six week basis where, uh, you need to come back in for at least, uh, a single, uh, infusion, a mm -hmm. single treatment. Um, one of, uh, the unique things that, that we utilize here that isn't commonly practiced, at least um, not in Austin and not uh, routinely within the state, um, is uh, we use an app that actually tracks our mood or the patient's mood on a daily basis. And, you know, it, it's something that allows us to put an objective metric on how you're doing outside of the clinic because one of the, um, you know, um, risk associated with, uh, getting, um, cash pay treatment is profiteering. And, um, 
when it's extremely subjective. Uh, sometimes people can be influenced on how many, you know, appointments they have that month. If, you know, you've got a week and, you know, you need to fill up your schedule, then sometimes that can influence uh, a provider's um, discretion on recommendations on how often someone should follow up for that maintenance treatment. Um, so the more objective you can be about um, analyzing someone's uh, you know, trend and how they're doing um, with that recommendation is extremely nice. And it also provides a little bit of reassurance for the patient as well, because that what we use, the patient can go on and look how they're trending and how their you know mood has been and there's different things that if we start to see a patient trend down we can send them new mental health questionnaires mm -hmm. you know and ask them you know and if it you know there's a certain threshold where if it drops below a certain level or a certain number with a patient's report it will automatically generate a another questionnaire or email or an alert to us so we'll know about it. Um, you know, it, it measures, it's pretty simple. It's just a, a text that you get and it measures, you know, how's your mood? Zero, you know, one to 10 yeah. and 10 being the best. If for some reason, you know, you've been at an eight for three weeks and all of a sudden you start trending at a two for four to five days, that would be cause for concern for that sure. we may want to reach back out and be like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Just, you know, notice. And that provides that objective metric and um, we're always going to sit there and tell patients it's better for you to come in sooner rather than later because especially with mental health, we typically put it off so long that we end up putting ourselves almost back to the same spot we were at before we got treatment to begin with. We don't want to lose all that momentum and all those gains that you got from your initial mental health series. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes patients that respond extremely well uh, can put it out, you know, to three months or six months. It's not as common, you know, putting it off that long. Most people do need that more regular four to six week maintenance schedule to maintain uh, their symptom reduction. One of the things that we do here is we do outpatient prescription therapy with ketamine. And that's where we write you a prescription for compounded ketamine that we get from, you know, the pharmacy that we work with and have been working with for the past couple of years. And you take that on a regular basis in order to keep the ketamine um, in your brain and keep those neuroplastic changes and most importantly, that makes ketamine unique from other psychedelics is it works on your glutamate neurotransmitter. Um, most other psychedelics are working on your other neurotransmitters, whether it's, you know, serotonin or your norepinephrine, stuff like that. Um, most psychedelics hit all of them at some degree. Um, but with ketamine, it's the glutamate. And that's really the been the game changer with ketamine and mood disorders and the treatment is learning a new 
uh, neurotransmitter that we can control that has profound effects on one's mental health. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it really is that there, this is going to be a whole new field for, um, you know, pharmacology. Um, unfortunately with big pharma, uh, that also means a lot more patents and a lot more money. Um, but you know, the more research we can get regardless of, you know, uh, whether it's big pharma or not, Hmm. um, the, hopefully the more, uh, people we can help with, with the different pharmacology. And, um, I will say on that note, um, whenever it comes to, looking at the way psychedelics work. Um, If anyone is um, considering, uh, you know, taking something to help potentiate um, the uh, therapeutic benefit of psychedelics, especially with ketamine, I would definitely encourage them to take a magnesium supplement Hmm. on a regular basis because, uh, we're pretty mag deficient in our diets. Um, and we, we magnesium is critical for your central nervous system. Hmm. And if, uh, let's, although you may not be, you know, uh, deficient to the point that you, you need that daily supplement. Um, it's definitely not a bad idea to, to take a, a supplement as long as, you know, you don't have any contraindication for it um, in order to ensure that you've got enough magnesium there to make those neuroplastic changes and, you know, have those um, uh, neurotransmitter um, uh, improvements that we're seeking. Hmm. So that that's one of the, the big topics that I like to um, remind patients of because it's probably the most underemphasized um, component of the uh, psychedelic therapy is the electrolytes. Hmm. I mean, you got to make sure your body's healthy in order to, you know, have that, that mental um, health gain. Hmm. Cause uh, we're, we're all, we're one big organism and everything ties into each other. Do you ever find that patients come back, you know, a year or more later and are interested in doing the full, you know, two to three week, uh, session again. And if, if so, is that something that your clinic and other clinics are generally open to doing, or is it really kind of once a lifetime you go through that two to three week six session, uh, process? No, I mean, it's, um, I don't think any clinic is going to turn you away if you want to repeat your series. Okay. Um, Obviously, we, we want to um, recommend it, uh, you know, the responsible use of it. And um, uh, if we think that a patient may be coming in a, a little too frequently um, or they're, you know, um, having a little bit too much recreational um, fun out of it as opposed to, you know, a, a medical need. Um, then that might be, you know, a factor in our recommendation on how frequent, but, um, you know, one of the things that we did during the pandemic, when things first, um, you know, started to evolve, um, you know, the, the national ketamine, uh, association 
put out an opinion paper and it was also endorsed by many others um, regarding ketamine infusion therapy or just ketamine therapy in general during the pandemic. And it, it was an essential service um, because that was the, the big thing. Although it's, you know, outpatient and it's, you know, voluntary and it's elective, uh, especially with this pandemic and the, the mental health toll that it's had, yeah. you know, it, this has become an essential service for yeah. a lot of people. And we even uh, started to, um, you know, try to run um, like payment packages and financial packages uh, for patients to come in more frequently uh, because, you know, they were seeing that the, the results that they had gained were waning much faster. Yeah. And that is one of the things that, that, I mean, I don't, no matter what medicine it is, the more stress you've got and the more, you know, life stressors you have go on, you know, the, the more of that, you know, uh, positive therapeutic uh, effect is going to wane yeah. much quicker. So, and, and ketamine's the same way. If, you know, you're living on an island somewhere and you've got no stress in life, your, your ketamine is going to last a pretty long time. But if you live in the same world that we do, yeah. um, typically, you know, it can wane much quicker. And during the pandemic, we've seen those uh, that, that patients actually, you know, have the ones that were coming in like every four to five weeks had to bump up their schedule where it was every two to three weeks. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we didn't lose sight of that. And um, we, we try our best to accommodate that increase of demand. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, because we, when we first opened, we didn't have the first or the second room set up. We just, we were running one room. That was how our business model was created. Um, we didn't need it. It wasn't necessary. Yeah. And then, you know, with the initial stages of the pandemic, it was, you know, kind of nice because we were only running one room and seeing, you know, four patients a day. Yeah. And, you know, the things kind of ticked up and surge and volume picked up at, for not just us, just the industry in general. And, you know, we put on the second room that way we could bring in two more patients a day and still, you know, do the socially distance um, thing. And uh, it's been nice that we've been able to accommodate that, but it's also been a sobering reality that that's something that we've had to accommodate for mm -hmm. that people aren't doing as well. Um, but I, I think that's uh, you know, just one of the realities of the way, you know, things have evolved where we're at right now is, at least for a little while, we're, we're going to have to be a little bit nicer to ourselves and we may have to spend a little bit more time and care on our, our own mental health yeah. um, for, you know, at least the next year or so yep. until we have some sort of idea of, you know, where we're headed. It, it does seem like psychedelics in the culture is in a growth phase of just in conversation and in uh, potential use for all sorts of, of, you know, psychological ailments that people might be going through in their, in their life. What, you know, the, in your mind, what are the main differences and similarities between ketamine and the other, uh, you know, maybe better known psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA, 
how do you compare and contrast the experiences and the efficacy of, of those drugs in your mind as, as uh, the same and different? So whenever it comes to, um, you know, just psychedelics in general, ketamine truly isn't, you're not, you, it's not a, it's an uncommon experience for someone to have a true hallucination. Huh. It's typically a distortion of what's actually in your visual field that's being emphasized. Or if you close your eyes, I mean, you can, you can see things in your eyelids, you know, just by having your eyes closed and they're just figments of your imagination. It's not like a, a true visual hallucination that you're having, uh, that you would have more so with like LSD. Okay. Um, but you know, it's a distortion of the reality and, you know, all of your senses are heightened, you know, your, your vision, your hearing, you know, um, things just, everything is, is distorted and that's where you get, uh, almost, you know, that, that enhancement of all of your senses, mm. um, as opposed to, you know, a complete fabrication of something. Um, and you know, whether we're, we're talking about ketamine, MDMA, mushrooms, LSD, DMT, ayahuasca, I mean, we can go all over the board. Um, all of them are going to elicit a different type of experience. They are going to attract a different type of person. So just like the dosing for ketamine is individualized, the psychedelic experience for one is definitely different from each experience. Um, from the you know clinical trials that we've seen so far with the MDMA and psilocybin, and even with ketamine, We've seen the effectiveness for PTSD um, uh, with MDMA and psilocybin more so th uh, than ketamine um, as opposed to with depression. So it may be um, more clinically appropriate depending on what mood disorder you're trying to alleviate uh, may be, you know, why you would choose one over the other. Mm -hmm. Um Another, um, and just, and just to stop you there. So the, which, which of those substances for, you know, would you say is most, uh, effective for, for depression, for PTSD, which maybe they're roughly the same, but in, in your mind, what, how do they compare to those specific ailments? So it, I, I think that, that the science supports, uh, MDMA and psilocybin more for, um, you know, the, the management of PTSD. Okay. I think it's had a little bit more clinical effectiveness on managing PTSD mm -hmm. as opposed to depression. Okay. Um, ketamine has been extremely beneficial for depression as opposed to PTSD. Mm. Um, do the substances work on both disorders? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I just think that, you know, if your primary issue, most patients with one typically have issues with the other. Right. I mean, they, they come in pairs and sometimes they all three present. Um, yeah. so, you know, if you're struggling with PTSD predominantly, um, right now the, the clinical research is showing a, a little bit more hope in MDMA being a little bit more effective, uh, than ketamine. And, you know, the, the trials with psilocybin, you know, have represent some of the same, uh, literature as well. Um, when um, it comes to 
uh, dosing is the big part because with psilocybin and LSD not being even approved for off-label treatment for anything. Explain what that means, not being approved for off-label. So the different schedule categories for controlled substances, um, if it's a schedule one drug, it doesn't even have research potential. We can't even investigate it. So that's been the big change with, especially with psilocybin and, you know, psychedelics in general that uh, has evolved is the fact that um, we, we kind of cracked the egg and we have now um, convinced the powers that be that there is, you know, some sort of uh, research uh, viability in these chemicals and in these substances and we should investigate them further they had been in a category one yeah. which, which barred all research oh, yeah. and have you know somewhat recently been shifted to is that schedule two or level two yeah drugs yeah well, what is in what is a level one substance to this day that is off limits to research and investigation um let's see I, so like is that her- like meth? heroin yeah heroin, okay methamphetamine yeah okay um Typically, uh, cocaine falls into that category, okay. but they still use uh, liquid cocaine for nasal surgeries. Okay. I mean, it still has a medical um, approved. Application, yeah. Um, but, you know, ketamine, the funny part about ketamine is it's been FDA approved for so long, it's actually, um, you know, not in the, the same schedule category uh, as, you know, most of the, the other like opiates and commonly, um, you know, medically approved, um, abused, uh, substances are, although it has been, you know, used for recreational and abuse in the past. Mm -hmm. It's just that the, the safety profile with it is, uh, so high that even if it is abused, it doesn't fall into as a, a severe category, a right. schedule. I think so. you were you were saying that it, one of the things, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that about ketamine is is the ability to control the dosages, whereas with, uh, you were beginning to talk about uh, psilocybin and MDMA and sort of some of the differences between, uh, between them. I, is that one of the primary uh, differences right now that like with ketamine, it's, it's, it is such a precise application and injection that you know exactly how much you're giving to a patient, whereas it's, it's a little bit harder with some other substances or is that not necessarily the case? Yeah. I mean, that, it, that really is kind of the, the heart of the matter. Okay. And that's what we're trying to figure out is exactly how can we take, you know, uh, this naturally growing substance and, you know, start to, to measure, uh, its properties and, you know, how can we, you know, either cultivate it or synthesize it to, you know, a, a, a purity to a point in which we know exactly, you know, what chemicals we have and exactly what strength and what type of reaction they're going to elicit. Right. Um, you know, that's, the, the big problem with recreational drugs, period, is right. just not knowing the potency, the purity, the dose, you know, um, whether it's, you know, you're you're doing ayahuasca or DMT or mushrooms or any of those. It's just uh, not many of us have, you know, a mass spec in our garage where we can just go, you know, test the, 
you know, solution of something and yeah. check it out. And that's the, the really big thing. And, you know, some of the other psychedelics really cause, you know, uh, a significant, um, you know, impact on like your serotonin system. Mm. So if you're on, you know, a, a antidepressant that may be, a, you know, a SSRI and you, you know, let's typically with, you know, LSD and psilocybin, they, they hit more your serotonin. Um, you know, you could actually have serotonin syndrome mm -hmm. and, you know, have adverse effects from that. That's one of the reasons why um, a lot of the ayahuasca retreats that people hear about, you know, ask you to go through, you know, a, a cleanse um, process. Uh, but whenever it comes to, you know, antidepressants or other medications for mental um, issues, um, we, we don't recommend changing any medications or typically much during your initial treatment so we can minimize the variables so we can kind of hone in on exactly, you know, what is the ketamine? What, what we're getting is from our actions, mm. our direct actions, and it's not from, you know, a dose change on another medication or, you know... Um, an interaction between, um, you know, illicit substance and ketamine. Um, there's been, you know, a mixed bag of results with, you know, uh, cannabis use uh, during ketamine therapy on whether, you know, it's um, kind of engaging the same systems or, uh, you know, whether it has a, a counterproductive effect. And, um, I think it's just way too early right now in the research for us to sit there and say, you know, uh, objectively one way or the other. But if you go ask a medical professional, if they recommend you to use something that isn't legal, <laughs> they're going to say no, yeah. period. I mean, that's just the CYA answer. It's, I'm not going to recommend for you to go do something that's not legal. Um, and if you've got to come off of your other medications in order to do it, I would highly recommend that you do it under the guidance of somebody that knows a little bit about those medications. Um, whether they're endorsing what you're doing or not, at least have, you know, um, a physician kind of give you a, a little bit of guidance on how you should handle your medications as opposed to just reading it off of Reddit. Mm. Is, uh, is the experience of a ketamine, um, uh, a ketamine therapy session or trip, is it, would you say it is comparable in its experience, uh, the nature of the experience itself to like a, to a psilocybin, um, mushroom trip or an MDMA experience or are they, are there noticeable differences generally speaking in, in that experience from, uh, between the drugs? There, there are noticeable differences, but, um, I have, uh, you know, seen and, um, had different experiences in which, uh, each one of them kind of elicited, uh, you know, that a profound moment and that was unique to each substance. Um, and, you know, it, like with most psychedelic experiences, 
no matter how good the last one was or how much you try to replicate it, you're never going to be able to replicate that psychedelic experience exactly the same. So whether you're doing ketamine or you're doing psilocybin, it's not going to be the same no matter how much you try to control it. <laughs> um, but I do think that each one of them has their own unique flavor and experience. And, uh, you know, it when when patients ask, you know, is ketamine more like a psilocybin experience or more like an LSD experience? Well, it really depends on what type of experiences you've had in the past. Yeah. But I have found that psilocybin is much easier to manage. It's much more lighthearted. Um, typically, you know, it's more commonly associated with, you know, kind of that giggle factor of that euphoria, you know, just, uh, you know, you get a stomach ache of laughing about laughing. Um, <laughs> Sometimes LSD, man, it's one of those where you're locked and loaded and you're along for the ride. You're, you're just a, a witness that's seeing what's happening and you really don't have much um, control over what direction it's headed. Yeah. Um, so ketamine, you know, it, again, it's dose dependent. If you're on the smaller end of that dose, it's much easier to manage and you can redirect your thoughts a little bit easier but as that dose starts to escalate, then, you know, you're getting more into a, uh, a psychedelic trip that is more analogous to like an LSD experience. Mm. Um, although it's not eliciting that the same degree of uh, hallucinations or, you know, the, the sensory uh, modifications. And uh, it's much more short term. Yeah. The problem with LSD is you don't. You don't know how long it's going to last, actually. Yeah, yeah. So it is more analogous to like an LSD, LSD trip, generally speaking, than it would be, you know, an MDMA uh, experience or a, a psilocybin mushroom trip. Is that is that fair to say, generally speaking? I would say based on the level of dissociation. Okay. So if, if it's a low dose and you're getting, you know, minimal dissociation that's very partial and, you know, you still have a high degree of, you know... Um, ability to recognize that you're in the room, um, then it's going to be much more like a psilocybin. Mm. But when the higher the, the degree of uh, dissociation, you know, the closer you get to 100%, the more of a, a psychedelic experience, more mystical uh, experience is going to be. Okay. Which would be more in, in the league of like an LSD yeah. trip. Okay. Yeah. Um, last question I want to ask you, I, we're, we're kind of, I feel like in, in the culture, we're at this, uh, you know, this precipice or not, probably not precipice, but we're at the cutting edge of, um, or your clinic is sort of ahead of the curb. It seems, it seems like it's, it's, it, there's just this sense I, I get that, uh, we're at the very beginning of having clinics like this in my lifetime and in your lifetime becoming far more common, oh, yeah. uh, where, where people who are desperate for help, even for, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a, a normal person, but everybody deals with hardship in their life. And then there also are people walking beside us in civilization who have extremely difficult psychological lives 
who are desperate for help. And uh, I think a lot of them, as we've uh, talked about, are soldiers experiencing who have experienced enormous amounts of trauma who are far more desperate and, and in need of help than the average person. But both people probably could significantly benefit from uh, from an, at, least, at least an attempt at, at, uh, at helping them. Um, you know, we're talking in 2020. Talk to me about, you know, in the year 2025 or the year 2030, you know, in the just in the future, but not too far away. Mm -hmm. How do you see substances, uh, psychedelic substances like ketamine, like psilocybin, like LSD, um, like MDMA? What do you think is the most likely future for therapeutic uh, usages of these drugs that we will be seeing uh, in short order, potentially in the U.S. And, and even around the world? Depends on what happens November 3rd. So, I mean, that truly is kind of the uh, biggest influential factor on what's going to happen over the next, you know, four, six years. Um, you know, if, uh, you know, things stay the same, that, you know, the climate doesn't change. I think it, it's going to be slow for, uh, you know, our, our nation, our, our society just as a whole um, to kind of uh, grow and evolve and adapt to these, these new uh, modalities of treatment. Um, I, I think that it is a, um, it would be um, ignorant for us to sit there and just to dismiss the, uh, the medical impact that these substances can have. Hmm. Um, you know, MAPS has done a significant job with trying to reintroduce psychedelics into mainstream practical use, um, and they've done an excellent job with it. Um, Microdose is a company that's, um, you know, working with other, you know, like Bex and Biomedical and they're, you know, uh, there's different companies coming out right now that are specifically, you know, pharmaceutical companies that are looking at manufacturing, like, you know, the big five psychedelic medicines An entire pharmaceutical company is just looking at manufacturing psychedelics. And that's something that's just been unheard of in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody would have ever considered putting that together, you know, five, ten years ago. Because psychedelics have been so far out of our reach from anything that a normal, you know, average common layperson could get their hands on. Yeah. Um, the accessibility has improved dramatically over the past few years. Um, you know, I would say probably since you know, around 2015, 2016, you know, slowly, you know, this has caught on to be more of a, a mainstream treatment. Ketamine clinics um, have increased significantly uh, from, you know, going maybe, you know, a couple dozen clinics in the nation to now, um, you know, there's, it's in the hundreds. Yeah. And um, the, the biggest concern obviously is the 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 rate of the growth and the the control of the growth um mdma psilocybin they're going to come on the market i anticipate within the next two to three years um if 
you know, if you want to stay innovative and on the, the cutting edge, like you're um, talking about, uh, and, you know, you've, you've kind of entered into the ketamine market world, I think that it, it would be, um, you know, a, a good idea for you to start to consider these other psychedelics as legitimate forms of therapy. And um, I think it, it's our duty to offer those if they are available, um, regardless of the cost or the, you know, amount of money that you can uh, profit from it. Uh, if one person may respond to ketamine and another person may respond to MDMA and another psilocybin yeah. and it's available and it's accessible. I think clinics should offer it. Um, you know, hopefully with MDMA and psilocybin, um, the, the process of the clinical trials and the FDA, uh, stuff doesn't, um, you know, water, things down whenever it comes to the accessibility and the market of it um kind of you know with spravato that's my biggest concern mm -hmm. is that you know we're going to figure out how to you know do the dosing for psilocybin and you know kind of hit the nail on the head but it's going to be some you know bureaucratic reason on why we can't you know offer the the genuine 100 percent effective molecule yeah. to the patient um, something of that nature. I, I it's going to come around. Um, it's a movement. It really is. Uh, the psychedelics are starting to be reintroduced back into medicine. Um, and it, it's always, uh, nice whenever you can turn on the TV and, uh, albeit Netflix for now, um, you know, go on there and, you know, get the history on some actual legitimate information on psychedelics and how they were used in the past. And I mean, just do a little bit of investigation on the history of psychedelics. You're going to find that they've been around a long <laughs> time. So this isn't anything new that we're stumbling into. It's a rediscovery. Mm. It's a reemergence. And the more accepted uh, in the, the mainstream population and the less we can, you know, um, uh, have stigma associated with psychedelics and abuse and, you know, mental health in general, uh, the better it's going to be for everybody. Um, I definitely think, you know, you know, if you're 18 years old and you're looking, you know, for something to go into for a career, uh, psychedelics is an emerging field mm -hmm. and it's legitimate. And I think it's going to be there for, for quite some time. Hmm. As a quick follow-up to that, where is the resistance coming from, right? I mean, you've talked about how effective these, uh, trials have been, have been in showing to improve the lives of people who are, are really suffering. Um, where, where is the, the resistance to, um, at the very least, like providing those therapies to people who really need it coming from in these days? One, one of the big parts, uh, that this has been a huge issue with our civilization as we've evolved over time. Um, anything that may disrupt the ability for, 
um, a large organization to control a population is always scary and you know it threatens that that structure the underlying uh, bureaucracy no matter what it is um, and I think that the fear of what could happen if you know it's kind of the the same uh, things that you know Nixon played off of you know uh, about marijuana being you know the devil's grass and you know it's just it's going to break down the whole family unit and just you know corrupt our society. I think it's um, you know just uh, it's going to be a process for us to get out of that mind frame. Yeah. Um, and it you know it's going to take a couple generations for us to truly evolve past that where we're uh, a little bit more open and accepting of it. But you know. We've seen a lot of uh, evolution and progressiveness over the past 20 years. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, they, uh, that uh, highly conservative, um, and I, I think it, it's almost just uh, a, an ignorant mind frame to be stuck in um, that regulates, you know, what we have as available commodities. Yeah. Um, hopefully that will uh, slowly get eroded over time. And, you know, our, our medical community will be a little bit more progressive to accepting alternative uh, therapies as mainstream therapies. If you had to bet, would you bet that that will continue to happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> John, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate no it. No problem. It was a pleasure to be.